You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Amen. If you will take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 66. Psalm 66 today. Good to see you this morning, and hopefully you don't have too many dietary regrets as you sit there. Um, I share this often at our church. One of the things that those of us in my line of work have to sense is the energy in the room, and actually it feels pretty good today, but the Sunday after Thanksgiving is always a joy to uh, preach and uh, to watch a few of you catch a few cat naps uh, while... I'm trying to point you back to spiritual things after flooding your physical frame with all kinds of things this past week, but good to see you today, and I trust you did have a good week. Some of you had a glorious Thanksgiving with lots of gatherings. Others of you, you may have gone through this last week alone uh, or with maybe some brokenness and challenges, and I'm grateful that uh, that last song we just sang, He Holds Us Fast, right? Whatever this last Thanksgiving may have looked like for you, uh, the God that we thank and that we glory in is always faithful. Psalm 66 today, and let's read the first four verses, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our study. We will look at this psalm in its entirety, Lord willing, today, but let's begin in verse 1. The psalmist says here, make a joyful noise unto God. Notice these next three words, all ye lands, sing forth the honor of his name, make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works, through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. And then again in verse 4, all the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee, and they shall sing to thy name, Selah. So we've been looking at on Sunday mornings the word on worship, what the Bible has to say about worship. And today we want to look at this aspect of our worship, worshipers' witness. We're going to look at today the evangelistic, the outreach tone of our worship before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the privilege it is to gather today and to meet around your word and to let your spirit stir and move in us as he already has done, Lord, as we have sung these songs to you, as we have considered not just what is said and what that means in an academic sense or a true sense, but also emotionally as we process, as we feel these truths. We thank you for that. Pray, Father, now as we enter the study of your word that you would give us clarity, you would give us liberty. Lord, we would uh, consider not just what we rejoiced and thanked you for this past week internally, inside of us, as well as maybe inside of our homes, but Lord, what that is to be to those who yet to know you as God and Lord and Savior. And Lord, may you uh, up our game, if you will. May you enhance our worship as we consider the world that is watching. May you draw many to yourself through our faithful adherence to what your word has to say in this area of worship. Again today, in Christ's name. Amen. Um, the other day, one of our families posted this picture. I don't know what you did this last week, but we had a few down days. And when you get, have down days, you do kind of weird things. But this is a picture of the Studers. Uh, that we're actually going to be doing a special offering for them. We'll let you know about that in just a moment. But this is uh, Jonah, their son, and then their cat. Is it, is it nachos or tacos? Is it nachos? Nachos is the name of the cat. And I don't know what he's listening to, but in some way, the cat is being influenced in this moment. Um, can I just say to you, that's, that's a humorous picture, but can I encourage you to think about what does the world hear 
when we hand them the headphones, if you will, of our influence, what do they hear? Uh, what, what moves them in their heart and mind as they listen to the soundtrack of our lives, as they listen to the influence and testimony that we have before them? It may just say to you today, our worship of God is crucial, listen to me, to getting the full attention of the world. Maybe not the cats, I don't know about that front, but our worship is a way that God gets glory and attention. And I'd like you to think about this today as it relates to the Bible's perspective on worship. Why we have to get worship right is because it's a heaven and hell kind of implication. If I am not faithfully worshiping the God I claim to know and represent, I am misleading others around me. And so our worship is much more than it's catchy, it's, it's snappy, it, it suits me. It's, am I doing this in a way that represents the God that I claim to worship to those who yet to know Him? And so we want to spend some time today in this text unpacking that very significant role of worship. Now, just by way of introduction today, Psalm 66 is designed to be sung as well as spoken. And I remind you that any of these psalms that we're reading were not meant just to be read as we just did today, but to be sang, uh, to be sung before those uh, in the congregation. And so we see in this psalm a celebration of the deeds of God on behalf of His people. In fact, this, these deeds and this deliverance of God for His people was so amazing that it required the worship throng or, or the, the chorus or the choir, if you will, to include more than God's people. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying, man, what God has done for us is so amazing, we got to get some others in on this. Is that the tone of our worship? The God who made all things and whose hand is the breath of every living thing. This God's so great and glorious that those of us in this room, we can't do justice to that God. So come on in and join this throng. That's the, the tenor and tone of the psalm before us today. One author said this, and I think we have to be careful in our, our emphasis of evangelism and missions to not miss the bigger picture of that. And Brother Fielder, Dr. Fielder, who's with us regularly, has reminded us of this uh, over and over in missions conferences gone by. But an author I was reading the other day said this, missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And so one of the things we have to be very careful with as we process personal evangelism and missions is that we don't forget it's about something more than just even the redemption of that soul. It's about the worship and glory of God. And so the question today is this, in a day of self-absorbed worship, how do we become more outwardly focused to the lost that are around us? Let's talk about today two witnessing responses to God that every worshiper should have. Number one, we must possess corporate vision. Go if you will to verse 5, and I have these two little phrases that will provide the skeleton of our outline today. I have them circled in my Bible. If you mark your Bible, you may want to do the same. But look at the beginning of verse 5. We see the first activity or response of God's people to God that is a witness to the world. Look at verse 5. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doings toward the children of men. Come and see. The first thing that has to be true of us in our witness and in our worship is that we corporately see things that the world does not. Um, one of my background points of reference is drama. I taught drama and speech in high school. I took speech and drama when I was in high school. 
And one of the, the dramatic uh, mechanisms used in acting is what is called aesthetic distance. For example, if someone is on stage and they're speaking to someone who's not on stage, but they're trying to create that connection there, that Mary's talking to the angel or whatever in a Christmas play, is that you actually pick a point on the back of the wall and you fix on that while saying your lines to that person. It's a, it's a, it's a theatrical technique. It's called aesthetic distance. Here's my thought to you today and question to you today. What did you see when we just sang these songs? Was there any aesthetic distance? Did we sing these songs to the Lord? And if someone else was in the room, and maybe you're here today and don't know Jesus Christ, did you sense we see something that you don't, that you can see? Where is the corporate vision, the come and see uh, tone of our worship? And so in verse 5, we see that the psalmist says, come and see. And so part of our praise and worship is to point others to what we see through uh, the Word of God. All right, let's talk about a couple of areas as it relates to this vision. Number one, jot this down, worship with visible inclusion. Worship with visible inclusion. One of the things that I hope happens when someone comes to our church, and if you're visiting for the first time, we're, we're pumped, we're excited you're here today. If you don't know Christ, we trust that you'll respond to him today before you leave, is we want you to see that, that you can be included in what God's doing, in his love, his truth, his grace, and his mercy. And so worship is meant to be visibly inclusive. The other day, someone was talking about this. I don't know if you went out for Black Friday shopping or not this past week, but it it didn't feel like normal. I wasn't out. I just went to Lowe's to get some stuff to work on the house, and it just didn't have the hubbub or the excitement, partly because so much of our supplies and you know shopping list things are still stuck on boats, right, <laughs> off the coast. And somebody the other day was talking about this. They said, um, fun fact, American-made products don't get stuck on ships, which tongue-in-cheek, that's, that's interesting. But here's the thought. If we're only focused on ourselves, that it's all about us. What about American-made products that are going to other countries? What about the gospel that's not meant just to stay in this room, but to go to other places? Is the gospel, is the glory and inclusiveness of our gospel getting stuck uh, in us and in our world? And so we have to be sharing that. All right, a couple things about that. Look at verse 1. He says, make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Number one, jot this down underneath of this first point, worship with visible inclusion. First, we need to include them in the area of joy, inclusion of joy. One of the things that we, <laughs> that we struggle with is sometimes in our fallenness, we hoard joy. Well, the world's falling apart, but I'm glad I can come to church and get away from it all and just kind of soak in the joy of our salvation. I understand the sentiment of that, but we have to be very careful with that, not to become too exclusive in our joy and the joy of our salvation in a way that's not sharing it and extending it to others. Listen, our joy through worship is to be generous. We're to be sharing it and extending it and offering it to those around us. So in verse 1 here, we see that the joy of the Lord is so big and so epic that the entire world is invited to join in the praise of God's people. All right, verse 2. Sing forth the honor of his name, make his praise glorious. And so because the name of our subject, the object of our worship is so glorious, we are to make his praise look glorious. I'm not saying that our worship services should not be guided by the Spirit, but I'm telling you to do worship right takes practice. It takes preparation. Aren't you grateful for those who help us in this church? You do know they didn't just get up here 
at 5 till 10.30, whatever, 10.25, there we go. 5 till 10.30, I've never said that before. 5-2, 5-2, Anyway, they didn't just show up and, okay, let's, let's just kind of throw some songs and see what sticks against the wall. There was practice, there was preparation. Are you investing the same kind of energy in your own worship? Our praise is to look glorious because the name of our God is glorious. So only through corporate open worship can others see the gospel and the fullness of the joy that it offers. There ought to be joy in this room because of our salvation. Our circumstances may be a bit challenging this morning, and can others feel that they're invited in? Quick example of that, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is called back to the city of Jerusalem. He's not called to build the temple. He's just called to build the wall around this city and and I think sometimes we, we miss the, the impact or the significance of that wall. And if we're not careful, we view it as the wall was built to keep the heathen out. But may I remind you of Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 43 as they're celebrating how quickly in 50 plus days they had built the wall. And in verse 43 it says, also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Rejoice, for God had made them to rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children, listen to this so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Don't build walls around our worship. If anything, these walls were to protect the worship, but then for the worship to be shared with the world. It was meant to be heard. It was meant to be extended. And we as God's people must carry on that great calling. All right, look at verse 3. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Uh, through the greatness of thy power shall thy enemies submit themselves unto thee. Number two, jot this down, inclusion of authority. So we're not talking about saying to the world they can have God on their terms. He is still God. He is sovereign. He's in control. He's in authority. But we extend the lordship, the God, if you will, ship of God to those around us. It includes them that they too can have God as their God. And this terrible working power of God is so awesome that it will bring his enemies into submission. I mentioned this last week briefly, but if I were to ask you, what's the one thing we need to do as God's people to push back the darkness in our day? How do we, how do we advance the cause of Christ? How do we push back against the advances of the world, the flesh and the devil that seem to be so overt and blatant in our day? I think if we're not careful, we look to politics and activism and, and other mechanisms. Listen to me, when our best offensive move is to worship God, to, to advance the light of the gospel, to advance the glory of God, not in activism, not in even voting and other things we may do, but to advance the light and glory of God through our worship. Because here's what happens when we, we push back against the darkness with worship. God wins them. What's the best way to defeat our foes, the foes of the gospel? It is for them to bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the best way to defeat our enemies. And so our worship is a large part of that advance. And for those who still reject him, as is referenced here in the text, God himself will defeat his foes. Another Old Testament example of the role of praise in our, our relationship with God before and before this world. Uh, Second Chron Chronicles 20. Let's look at it. I think we have time. Second Chronicles. Would you go there for a moment? I think you need to see this. Second Chronicles 20. And if you would, please, verse number 20. Jehoshaphat here is dealing with some enemies of the Jews, and he employs a very unique 
strategy on how to defeat those who were attacking God and His people. Second Chronicles 20, if you would, and let's look at verse 20. And they arose early in the morning and went forth in the wilderness of Decoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, um, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. So it's not the army and then the worship team, if you will. They're out in front, and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. I love this next verse. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. God can use praise and worship to be offensively effective in our day. And so may we push back against the darkness, not just with voting and activism, but may we do so with praise. One author said this, praise is a weapon. Praising in the midst of a fight or battle, listen, puts more faith in God's power, potential, and promises than in our problems. Isn't there something recalibrating about praising when we want to lash out and we want to react back? It it puts our faith and confidence uh, in the Lord. May we fight our battles. May we assert God's authority in our day through worship. All right, back to our text in Psalm 66. Look at verse 4. And all the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee, and they shall sing to thy name, Selah. And so the present tense of our worship, what we're doing now is just a preview of what is promised here in verse 4, when all the world will worship God. That is God's ultimate agenda. That all, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, all will worship our God. Now, here's the temptation, because we look forward to that day. I know I do. I read Philippians 2, and I just start, I just, I, I just, I'm salivating to see that happen. But if we're not careful, we view it as, yes, yeah, someday all those knees and tongues are going to grovel at the feet of God and own the fact they rejected Him. That's not God's desire. It, it's what will happen for some. He wants us all to willingly submit to him, and those who today are rejecting him and ignorant of him, may we prepare them for that moment by sharing the worship and praise that God has put in our hearts. I read recently of a story, I've heard this before, of a man named Gandhi. Have you heard of Gandhi? Um, he's, he's revered in many, um, many circles and, and has a pretty broad impact, but he originally was known as a lawyer who led the campaign of India to get their independence from Great Britain, from the British Empire. Uh, He lived from the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. But the story is told that early on in his, his career and in his influence, he became curious about Jesus. He had heard of Jesus and Uh, With his lack of education and training as it related to Christianity, he began to read the Gospels and wanted to know more about Christ. And kind of at the apex of that interest, when he was most intensely interested in Jesus and in Christianity, he decided one Sunday morning to stop by a Christian church in Calcutta and, and, and to just hear more about Jesus. And as he came to the door, he was he was dismissed. They wouldn't even let him in. Um, he was Indian, and the caste system he was in either had to be white or he had to be of a certain uh, stature in the caste system, and literally, they pushed him away, one who was seeking Jesus. 
And years later, Gandhi, amongst other things he was quoted and known for, once was quoted as saying this, if it weren't for Christians, I would be one. If it weren't for Christians, I would be one. Here's my question to you today. Is your worship of such a nature that if someone is seeking Christ, your worship is an asset, not a liability to their search? I don't want to ever be a hindrance. I don't want to ever be a discouragement to the next Gandhi and the next individual that's seeking Christ because of things I see or things I focus on that are lesser priorities. And so this question, before we move on, if the glory of God is defined by how you worship before those around you, do they feel they can and they want to be included in relationship with your God? And then this follow-up question, what needs to change for that to more visibly show to those around you? Are those around you, do they know they can and they want to be a follower of God because of your worship? What needs to visibly change? All right, go back to our text now to verse 5. Come and see, excuse me, the works of God. He is terrible in his doings toward the children of men. Notice that again, he is terrible in his doings. Number two, jot this down, worship not only with visible inclusion, number two, with visible performance, visible performance. One of the things that we suffer from as New Testament believers is our God is more abstract. So we would look at the Old Testament. Well, yeah, God used to part the Red Sea, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. He did tangible things, but in our day, God's more spirit and Sometimes that affects our worship as we become a bit abstract about a God who wants to enter again today in our time and day, human time and space with his power and his performance. Listen to this statement. This is profound to me because I think, again, we divorce the Old Testament and its worship and construct from the New Testament in which we live. Listen to this statement, this statistic. Only 12 chapters in the New Testament do not reference the Old Testament. Only 12 of all the chapters in the New Testament do not quote or reference something of the Old Testament. 12. Why then is our New Testament faith and worship often divorced from a God who does stuff? A God who does things and does powerful things. Where is that? Uh, where's the lacking in our day from a God who is still just as powerful? And so our God cannot be abstract in our worship. Uh, we need to make sure that others hear of what God has done for his people. All right, let's talk about a couple things as it relates to the performance. Number one, the performance of his sovereignty. He is in control. And in verses 5 to 7, we see him asserting this authority, asserting this sovereignty. <laughs> First in verse 5 and 6, we read verse 5, look at verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. Remember the story, the song of Miriam, when they get on the other side of the Red Sea, that they worshiped in this moment. God did something in history, the testimony of history on behalf of God's people. Verse 7, he ruleth by his power forever. Forever. That includes today, not just yesterday. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. As we see in verse 7, that his power, he rules forever and ever. He is worthy of our worship uh, today. The Lord truly is the Lord of every man. He is sovereign. He is in control, and our worship should be demonstrating that on a regular basis. Again, you're in Psalms. Go back to Joshua for just a moment. I may give you another example of how the praise of God's people makes a dent and a difference in the world that is watching. 
Joshua chapter number 2, and look, if you will, at verse 9. All right, we're entering now quickly this uh, story where Joshua was entering the promised land, and they're beginning to spy out the land, and he sends the, <laughs> the spies, and they run into a lady named Rahab. And look, if you will, at verse 9 of Joshua chapter 2. So she's hidden them as they're being uh, pursued and sought out by uh, those in power there uh, in Jericho. And notice in verse number uh, 9, And she said, Rahab, unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly des uh, destroyed. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. That should be the effect of our worship. God is still parting Red Seas and doing powerful things. The missing ingredient often is we as his people are not singing of it. We're not broadcasting it and the world's not hearing of what God has done for his people. And so may we be willing to testify of the sovereign power. Notice in verse 11 again, she says, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. He is God in all places. He is sovereign. All right, back to verse number eight in our text in Psalm 66. Notice the second thing we are to celebrate before a world that is watching. First, his sovereignty. Now notice, if you will, verse uh, number 8. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. Number 2, jot this down, the performance not only of his sovereignty, but of his preservation. Performance of his preservation. Um, do your kids ever shock you as mine do? Um, you're like, yeah, I've seen everything. You know, even as a pastor, people say, now this is going to surprise you. And I'm tempted to say, yeah, right, I've heard everything. And then I hear something new I never thought I would hear before. Some of the other was talking about, you know how we will say, well, my child would never. They would never. And then you're in some public setting, right? And the very thing you just said they would never do. And here, here's how one author put it. As soon as you say, my child would never, here they come nevering like they never nevered before. Doesn't that sound, ring true to you? Aren't you thankful that God's preserving power in our lives is, is able to deal with anything that we, quote, think we never will do? I would never slip into that. I would never fail in that. God is preserving us, his kids, through this power that he uh, possesses. And so our worship needs, <laughs> needs to testify of that. <laughs> I think sometimes we talk about what God has done in a big way because <laughs> that's more... Uh, appealing or we can keep ourselves at a distance. But when I talk about his preservation, I have to admit where I've failed him. I think many times we're not testifying of the preserving power of God because we're not willing to admit we're a sinner, even now as a redeemed believer in Christ. We're not willing to admit where we got ourselves in a pickle, we got ourselves in a situation, and God got us out of that. Are we willing to share those kind of testimonies uh, before God? I love songs that we sing that, that talk about what losers we are. Some of the other day said, you can't offend me. I sing songs that are more mean to me in church than anything you can say about me. Uh, wretched sinners, loathed by God, we're defiled, we're contaminated, and yet God still preserves us. Is that a vibrant part of our worship? And so our greatest shortcomings 
often in worship are underappreciating how desperately we need God and we need His preserving work on our behalf. One author said this, worship of the one true and living God is the only place where life is found. And sometimes we forget how special where we're at with God is. And then this conclusion, and worship of anything else is a pathway to doom. We're headed toward a glorious city. God's preserving us every breath, every moment, and our worship needs to be affected by that. Does the world hear that from our lips and lives? All right, notice a couple of things quickly here, these verses we just read. In verses 8 and 9, notice that Israel calls on the peoples of the earth to bless God because of how he had preserved them. Um, (laughs) Is there something bigger going on when God is preserving his people, especially before the the dawn of what we're about to celebrate for Christmas. Why was God preserving his people? And why should the whole earth celebrate the preserving power of God? Who was going to come through the lineage of including the gal we just quoted from in Joshua 2, Rahab? Who's coming? The Messiah. And so the preserving work of God for his people should call all people to worship him because it's through that preserving work uh, that Jesus uh, would come. And so we see this invitation to call, this call to worship uh, for all in the world. All right, look at verse number uh, 10. For thou, O God, now he begins to talk about some ways in which God has preserved his people, has proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou brought us, us into the net. Thou laced affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. This, these analogies, we went through the fire and through the water. But thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. And so we see that God is reviewed here. His work of preservation is reviewed on behalf of his people. Notice in verse 10, Israel is pictured as silver being refined in intense heat by the smelter. In verse 11, they're uh, described as being imprisoned in a net. The end of verse 11, being forced into slave labor. Verse 12, being downtrodden under wretched men. And then at the end of verse 12, they're submitted to these frightful, overwhelming dangers of fire and water. And yet, you notice the end of verse 12, thou hast brought us out into a wealthy place. I think a preview to the millennial kingdom, where God will enrich his people and enthrone his people as they rule and reign with him. And so we see this promise of God's preservation on behalf of his people. If you were to ask me what is one of the great <coughs> excuse me, one of the greatest evidences of the existence of God, we could quote a lot of things. I mean the sunrise, we didn't see it today, um, the snow that, that came this weekend and the change of the seasons. I mean there's so many evidences of God. But you know one of the most primary evidences of the power and presence of God is the Jewish people are still around. The preservation of the Israelites, of the Jewish people it boggles the mind how they've survived. And that preservation is with a purpose, and the purpose is for God to get glory. Can I remind you as New Testament believers, I don't know if we have any Jews in our midst today, but as a local church believer, if you know Christ as Savior, that in large part the same is true of us. Why in the world do we still have the Bible today with all of its enemies? Why do we have the local church Why do we have these treasures that we have in earthen vessels, the gospel that's still pure and unadulterated that we believe and profess? It's only because of God's preserving power. And are we taking credit for what God alone has done? Just yesterday, I was reading in Daniel chapter 2, and you have the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And a verse jumped out at me in reference to our text today, in chapter 3 and verse 9, where it says, wherefore at that time, remember the 
the psaltery and the sackbuts and all those weird instruments are listed there. They all sound, and then everybody's supposed to fall at the feet of this huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they did not. And in verse 8, it says, Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. And sometimes it's the Chaldeans, and sometimes it's a different. But over and over, cultures have attacked and maligned God's people, and God just keeps preserving, preserving, preserving. A question for you today that I trust will sober you as it has me. How will our worship of God be affected if he shows up anew and afresh for us? What if God preserves us? Until tomorrow, and 10 years from now, what if he preserves us? Who's going to get the credit? Can we commit ahead of time, whatever preservation is on the horizon, and God will take care of us as his people? Are we going to predetermine to give him the credit for that? He preserves his people with an intention, and that intention and purpose is to get glory. Don't make it about you. Don't make it about yours. Make it about him. Brother Fielder, I mentioned a moment ago, sent me this quote the other day, and it challenges my thinking. He said this, we pray for relief from a volatile, uncertain economic situation so that we can be assured of security and prosperity. Maybe we don't get the answer we want because we think it's only about us and our needs rather than an impetus for the mission which God has called us to. There's a mission. And that mission is God's trying to get glory in every corner and crevice of this globe, not to make us comfortable, not to give us everything that are our, quote, felt needs. He's after his glory. He's after this world. Worship him uh, with that kind of bent in thinking. All right, number two, go back to our text now and go down to verse 16, and we see another come invitation that gives us our second, if you will, posture as a worshiper who is witnessing. Look at verse 16. He says this, after saying, come and see in verse 5, notice, come and hear. Number two, second, let's talk for a few minutes about individual audio. So there's the corporate vision or video that we offer to the world as they watch. Number two, there are things they should hear from us, individual testimony uh, of God. Did you guys catch what Brother Josh was talking about when we started this morning? By the way, I, I'm not willing to provide counseling. I need counseling, okay, after yesterday. The Buckeyes lost. Um, Heidi had this brilliant idea, uh, which I'm not saying that facetiously, okay, where our Christmas tree is half Michigan. My son Landon was born in Michigan. He has his hoodie very proudly tucked beside him here on the chair this morning. Uh, Michigan beat Ohio State yesterday. And the other half is the Buckeyes. So half has the red and silver tinsel and silver and red, you know, uh, ornaments, and the other is the blue uh, the maize and blue and, and gold. All of us have individual things, right? I'm passionate about the Buckeyes. Someone else in my house, some said I'm disqualified for ministry. I'm not ruling my house well. I have uh, a uh, Wolverine fan in my midst. But don't we all have things we're passionate about? Like if I said, just tell me what you're passionate about. Like what, what lights your fire? What gets you going? What got you up this morning? What drives you? We all have things that are our favorite things, whether it's a sport or a show or a hobby or something that makes us light up. Here's my question to you today. Is God that for us? Not, not when we're in this setting. I'm talking when someone asks you about God, it's just you. Maybe no one else in the room is saved. No one else knows your God. Can you not but help yourself to just speak of him? That, that's the tone that we need in our worship, not just when we're in a corporate setting, but day to day in the, in the, in the grind of life, in the the nitty-gritty of things that we are willing to still speak of God. Evangelism and worship are not strictly divided or distinct. They often merge 
together as we testify of the God we know. And so in verse 16, notice he says, not only come and see, but come and hear. Now there's a subtle shift in verse 13. Notice the first word that begins verse 13. Would you look at it there? I. Verses 13 to 20, now the psalmist goes from more of this, hey, come join us and let's sing about our God, to now there's more of an individual feel to this second half of the psalm. It's now the psalmist testifying of what God has done for him, what he owes God and what he's seen God do, and he's testifying of that to the world that is watching. I love seeing lost folks come to our church, but I'm telling you, the lion's share of those we're going to reach with the gospel aren't going to come through these doors first. You're going to go through their door. You're going to enter their cubicle. You're going to work next to them. You're going to call them. You're going to reach out to them. It's going to be in your personal space that we're going to include and offer to others this worship that God has called us to testify of. All right, a couple things under that. <laughs> number, number one, worship with audible integrity. The first thing we need that's referenced here in verses 13 and following is that we have to worship individually with audible integrity. And as you can tell, I'm still working through my own audio uh, integrity. Thanks for your patience with my voice. I think I got about 20 uh, antidotes or solutions to my issues, okay? Just my voice. There's other things, okay, that there are no solutions for. Um, but what's crazy is I think what has helped me the most is, is oregano, a, a essential oil. And I uh, took that, and <laughs> I've, I've been at least better than I was last week. And you, you weren't sure what was going to happen when I started getting choked up last week. Maybe it's going to end early for once. Maybe you were hoping for that. <laughs> um, but uh, just hack my way through it. Um, I remember the first sermon I preached, and Brother Wingate's here and others, Brother Yoder and others who have preached for a number of years. I don't know if you men remember your first sermon, but it went better in my head and even on my page than it did when I preached it, okay? And if you think it's bad now, you should have been there 20 years ago when, when this began. The other day, somebody sent this to me, and us preachers and teachers will appreciate this. So the picture on the left symbolizes the sermon in your head, okay? A finely crafted, well-delivered, perfectly timed sermon. And then how it actually went is the picture on the right, okay? Uh, do, you, do you ever feel like what comes out of your mouth and what you communicate, that went better in my head. That, that was... The delivery was much better, at least in how I, I pictured it. I think often as it relates to our preaching, what we preach and what we testify of is not lining up with our character. And so the psalmist here begins in these next few verses to address his worship to God, the God who knew his heart, the God who knew his shortcomings, and may I remind you that's the God that you and I worship today as well. He knows where you're at. Stop faking. Stop pretending. Let God give you integrity and pray that God will help me in this area as well, because when I have audible integrity, I can now faithfully worship him. All right, two things about that quickly. In verse 13, notice he says, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Two things under this. Number one, we need more integrity with our vows. Integrity with our vows. It's interesting. You could do a word search. The, the book of Psalms talks about vows over and over and over again. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word vow, but often we associate that maybe with marriage or some other one-time thing. It was pervasively referenced in the book of Psalms. And as frequently is the case, notice when he uttered the vow, when he was in trouble, right? In that typically, God, if you get me out of this, I will whatever, or I'll stop whatever. 
And so here the psalmist in a, in a bind had made a vow, a verbal commitment to God. And notice now he's determining to follow through on it. May I give you a brief statement about vows? Maybe jot this down. Vows should be made hesitantly. Vows should be hesitantly made, but once made, heartily kept. Hesitantly made, heartily kept. And a question I would give you today, a probing question would be this. What's something you vowed to God that you've yet to follow through on that's undercutting your worship of the God who knows the vow you made? It may have been reckless. It might have been foolish. It might have been half-hearted. But what has God heard you say? What has God heard you commit to him on that you've yet to deliver? And may I say this as well? Others often have heard those vows. Honey, we're going to start doing this. We're never going to do that again. Or kids, we're going to, or neighbor, or whoever. Someone hears of that commitment, and then we don't follow through. And we wonder, we wonder why they're not following the God we claim to worship. And so may we commit to God what we have already verbalized to God so that we might be more effective as a worshiper of God. The people who hear your songs have also heard your vows. And when we are unfaithful to our vows, that, that, that undercuts anything else we claim and testify about our God. We must be men and women and young people of integrity as it relates to vows. All right, verse 15. I will offer unto the burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the, light, with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with, with goats, selah. Number two, integrity not only with vows but with sacrifice. Integrity with sacrifice. The incense of rams that is here denotes the sweet savor of sacrifice that ascended as it was consumed by God and in the, or by fire and in the nostrils of God it was viewed as a sweet uh, smelling savor. It's interesting because rams and he goats uh, were prescribed in the law for worship by the entire nation or leaders, not by individuals. Nowhere do you see in the sacrificial system where an individual would make these kind of sacrifices. These were corporate. These were these were extensive, these were leader kind of sacrifice, level sacrifices that the psalmist is referencing here. And so deep sacrifice, public sacrifice uh, must be more a part of our worship. Now you're not going to love this next statement, but I'm telling you it's true and I don't like it either. One of the reasons that the world could care less about the God we claim to worship and serve, listen to me, is they sacrifice more for their God, small g, than we do for our God, big G. Where's the sacrifice? Worship is not lip service. Worship is, this cuts deeply. This costs me greatly to be a worshiper of God. Where is the sacrifice in our praise? And the world could care less about a God that doesn't cost us anything. We must care enough to give deeply and give in a long sense to God in a way that draws attention uh, to His name. Um, we're, one of the things we're praying about, and I've mentioned this a few times now, COVID kind of sidelined us a bit, but one of the areas we need to work on is this room. Think that you, you could look down at our carpet and other things that are a bit uh, worn. That, that This room needs some attention. Why? So that we can look around and say, wow, look at this building we have. Someday, hopefully, we can make some amendments to the space. No, so people see we prioritize God. Uh, there's things that we need to invest in. And I was thinking of this as it relates to the Queen of Sheba. Remember her? She comes to Solomon. One of the, the wonders of the day was the temple that Solomon built for his, for his God. 
And in verse number three, it says this, and when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon in the house that he had built, this house of God, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, his cupbearers also in their apparel, the women noticed the apparel, I guess, uh, the end of the verse, in his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Solomon had sacrificed for his God, and it reduced her resistance and skepticism. It eliminated it because she, he had sacrificed so greatly uh, to his God. Where is the integrity in our sacrifice? Think about who we worship. He's worthy of everything. And I just I give him little meager things. I just toss a few things his way of leftovers and margin. If God is really the God we claim, then we ought to be willing to give him everything. By being willing to give sacrificially on a regular basis. Could the words, the world's dullness of hearing be less about their issues and more about our lack of integrity with behavior that matches our claims about the God that we worship? Can I ask you this question today? We'll move to our last point. Where does our walk, where does your walk need more integrity so that your talk and your sing can get the full attention of our God? It's not what you're singing that probably is the issue. It's not, not what tunes you're humming. It's, it's the fact that your, your character does not align with your claims about God. Let it change you. Let it give to you greater integrity. All right, look at verse 16. Let's end these last four verses together. He says, Come and see, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Number two, and lastly, worship with audible testimony. So audible integrity... Number two, audible testimony. Um, the illustration we used last week, I hope that little video clip just helped capture how music um, and lyrics together, a song has so much sacred potential as we sing together across generational divides and differences. But have you ever seen an illustration of the Trinity? I don't know what would be your go-to, you know, whether it's you know, water you know, in three different forms uh, water, ice, vapor, or it's the egg, uh, the shell, the yolk, and the, uh, the egg white, or whatever you've seen as an illustration. But illustrations of the Trinity all break down, don't they? Because you know, the egg, for example, the yolk alone cannot be the egg in entirety, and so obviously those illustrations all break down. But what's interesting <laughs> is this thought as it relates to worship. I think where we fail as we try to portray the Trinity is we think we have to do it visually. Follow my thought here for a moment. God is a spirit, right? We, stop, we began this series in John chapter 4. God is a spirit. And why we're so frustrated with the illustrations we use, and I know we're talking illustrations, is because we're trying to do it visibly. And here's the thought today, based on the illustration we talked about last week. We need to do it audibly. A music chord, you're going to have three unique sounds, and yet together they make up something together. It's, it's interesting to me how we always think visually with God, when often it needs to be more audible with God. The fact that we today all sang songs together, there's something there that's beyond us. We all have different takes and different backgrounds, but we, we, we meld, we, we merge our voices together, and together we're able to give testimony of God. Do not underestimate what happens when someone comes into our church and hears us together worshiping God. It, it, it shows something, it testifies of something, and so our audible uh, contribution ought to be one of testimony. 
Notice two things about this testimony. Number one, in verse 16, he says, Come and hear all you that fear God, and I will declare what he had done for my what? Soul. Number one, testimony with soulfulness. Testimony with soulfulness. Um, I can tell you about God in an academic sense. I can get a systematic theology and talk about God's uh, immutable attributes and his natural attributes and his, his intrinsic attributes. Some we can share and others cannot, but that can be very a- academic in nature. <laughs> Worship allows me to share from my soul what God has done for me and who he is for me. And so in verse 16, notice he calls all who fear God and says, let me tell you what God has done for my soul. Uh, and so he testifies of this who are listening, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. Verse 17, I cried unto him. Now here is the testimony of what God has done in his soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Notice the connection between the soul or the heart and the tongue and the mouth. And may I say to you today, listen to me, it is, it is, our worship is defined not by what our lips say and our mouth says, but the heart behind them. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and sings, by the way. And so you see this integrity and this testimony of what God had done in his life. And as we mentioned last week, our worship too often is more about externals than internals, and hence the flatness, the dullness of our praise as the world is watching. I think worship doesn't need a change in style to get the attention of the world. I believe that with all of my heart. But it does need a change in our soulfulness. We all know when we're singing from our soul and when we're not. And may I say to you, the world does too. They can tell when it's in us and it's coming out of us and when it's just on the exterior. May God help us to grow in this area. I read this the other day, and you could obviously take this in wrong directions, but the author I was reading said this, and I find this interesting. He said, the more I consider Christianity, the more I found that while it established a rule and order, listen to this, The chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. Now you can say, whoa, that makes me nervous today. Pastor, what are you talking about there? We're going to all be running up and down the aisles. But the order is to free us to be soulful, to share what God's doing in our lives. And I I think sometimes we're so stuck on the order and the structure that we forget why God gave us that, why things are to be done decently and in order. Where's the soul in our worship? Where's the soulfulness? in our testimony of what God uh, has done. I don't know how you read the Psalms, but I'm telling you, these were written by people who cried and wept and sang and shouted and banged things together. There was a soulfulness to their worship. And yet we come in and we just kind of, we kind of just ease our way into things. And we wonder why the world's not impressed with the God we claim to worship. We need testimony with soulfulness. All right, let's end today in verse 18, because the challenge is our soul is desperately wicked and often wanders. I love this provision beginning in verse 18. The psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended the voice of my prayer. Lastly, jot this down, testimony with repentance. Testimony with repentance. I was joking with several of you today when you came in. Is there anything you ate this last week that you regret you ate, or at least you ate as much of what you ate? Um, some of you put down a couple, of, not pieces, a couple of pies. I know, I can see, okay? That's why you're co- half comatose today. Um, the things that we ate, and I don't know if you had cranberry sauce or not. That's not necessarily my wheelhouse. If it's fresh, I, I can maybe get into that. 
Have you ever seen where, and maybe you have this, where you just kind of slog the can and it's still shaped like the can? Um, and then you just kind of slice it, you highbrow people out there, okay? Um, there was an article in the, the paper this last week about, um, have you ever noticed in a cranberry sauce can, that actually it's upside down, like where you almost, like us OCD people, it just bothers us, like I turn it over, oh, now the label's upside down, I turn it back over, the bottom's on the top. There's a reason why they can it that way, and there was an article talking about that actually the way, you know, so the top of a can typically with that crimped edge, that the reason they flip it over is because the top then creates an air bubble that allows when you open it to just pop out versus you got to, you know, shake it out and then it just kind of explodes on the plate or the dish or whatever. They actually on purpose can it upside down from our perspective to allow that to just slide out. Isn't that interesting? Um, at least to me it is. Um, can, I ask, can I ask you a question? When is the last time that you're thinking listen to me, has turned upside down. When's the last time you own, not just privately in your own heart before God, but you admit to God, I had that upside down. I, I thought I was sincere and right, or I even willfully was doing wrong. When's the last time you were brought to your knees in repentance? Worship is not just this God's amazing and we're all just going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Worship is also, I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge that sin. Does the world see us owning our sin and owning it in a way that is, yes, worshipful, but it is in a repentant manner? What's the number one thing that keeps people out of these kind of settings right here? What would be an excuse for someone not to come to North Life Baptist Church this morning? That church is full of what? Hypocrites. Brethren, they see where we are not owning our sin. I'm not saying that, that that's a good enough reason not to come to church, but we are being hypocritical, are we not? Worshiping a God that knows our sin and we haven't repented of it. And our own sin is creating separation between not just our soul and the Savior, but also between those around us. So owning uh, this area of repentance. Verse 18, quickly, notice he says that sin must be confessed <laughs> before God. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sin must be properly confessed before God can be effectively addressed. Sin must be confessed before God can be addressed. And what's interesting to me, I even use this verse, and we use it in reference to our private prayer time. I'm not saying it's a wrong application necessarily, but that's not the context of the chapter of the psalm. This is still public. The effect of this unconfessed sin is affecting the worship of this believer before those who are watching. And so may God help us to deal with sin that allows us to publicly and faithfully worship him. Verse 19, but verily, because he's addressed the sin, God hath heard me, he hath attended to the voice of my prayer. And so because of the genuine repentance, God does listen and God does respond. May I say to you today, we need to stop blaming God for not manifesting his glory in our midst and before our world and own where our unrepentant spirit is the lid that is limiting the inclusion of the lost. May we as God's people take that to heart. And then notice the ending praise, blessed be God, which has not turned away my prayer in his mercy from me. He praises a God who has heard his prayer. Let's go to Romans 15 for a moment. Our time is done today. Romans 15. And whether you were impressed with the cranberry illustration or not, let's go there. Revelation 15. I thought I had a great nugget for you today. And you're just like, whatever, man. Two of you loved it, okay? 
we'll, we'll hang out afterwards and have a can of cranberry sauce together. <laughs> Romans 15, and let's look, if you would, at verse number 8. Romans 15 and verse 8. And as you're turning there, I want to show you this thought, this statement that convicts me. I, I don't know where I first came across it, but here's, and I don't know if these numbers have been verified, but someone said this, the average Christian has sang 20,000 hymns, listened to 4,000 sermons, and has never shared the gospel with anyone. Sang 20,000 hymns, listened to 4,000 sermons, and never shared the gospel with someone else. Brethren, that's a problem. May I just submit this one caveat to that study? Part of the problem is we divorce the first part of that statement from the last part of the statement. They work together. When we're worshiping like we should, we can't help but share the gospel. And when we're sharing the gospel like we should, we can't help but worship. The two run in parallel. I think often we've created this artificial barrier or distinction between the two when both are part of a faithful walk with the Lord. Now, with that in mind, look in Romans 15. And I love this. Let's bring this now to the New Testament. Paul, a man who knew the Old Testament, to say the least. Verse 18, now I say that Jesus Christ <laughs> was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the, <laughs> excuse me, the promises made to the fathers. So that would be a reference to the Jewish audience or beneficiaries of the ministry of Christ. Verse 9, and thank God for this, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. Verse 11, again, praise the Lord all ye Gentiles, and laud him all ye people. Verse 12, and again, Isaiah said, there shall be a root of Jesse. He shall rise up to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. I circled in Romans 15 in my Bible, and again, and again, and again. God wants the world to worship him. Not just the Jews, or now we as the church age, as a part of the local church, just those who are the insiders. He yearns for, again and again, he says it in scripture, I want to include all in the worship of my son. And what Paul is saying here is there's something about God that's so universally praiseworthy and profound and beautiful and comprehensive that all creatures should be invited into worshiping this God. Why is that? Because the God that we worship appeals to the basic core, the desire of what we yearn for that only He can fulfill. So our worship must include the invitation that we see reiterated here in Romans 15. As we finish today, this thought, worship is about the glory of God being increasingly known and felt. Nothing possesses more potential for that increase than the witnessing with it to the lost world. How else are we going to increase the glory of God and those who are worshiping Him? We can't increase it, but increase those who know of it if we're not evangelizing, if we're not witnessing to the world through our worship and praise. Last night, I was sitting in my desk, Heidi and I were talking, it was dark, you know, as it gets dark by what, 3.30 now or whatever, <laughs> and I'm sitting in my office and out our, back, out our back thing through our pine trees, you could see there was an ambulance, a neighbor, just on the other side of a tree line in our little neighborhood. We only lived there not even a year yet. My first thought is, are they still here? Are they, are they still alive as, as, as that's being navigated? They were there for quite a while with the rotating lights in the dark of night. And number two, did they know Jesus? 
where are we at in this area of worship and witnessing? We're not worshiping God if we don't love what He loves and love who He loves and extend to those that He extends His glory and mercy to. We must be faithful. We must grow in this for the glory and honor of God. And with this, this thought, can you remember last time that you had someone you knew who didn't know Christ in a church setting, like you invited them to church or maybe you were at a Christmas Eve service or something as we'll have again this year? When you have a lost person with you in a, in a church setting, everything about that church service takes on greater nuance and importance, doesn't it? And I hope the preacher halfway does well today, okay? Um, I hope that the musicians are not off-key. I hope that the building's clean. I hope it's, it's whatever. The things that you know would be distractions to that person. Where is the carefulness with our worship? Where's the brevity? Where's the, the urgency? Knowing that as we sing and as we live out our worship before this world, heaven and hell destinations are being determined. Here's the question we're done. We allow God to shape more personally and intimately your worship by a greater witness of corporate vision and individual audio that's found only in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word.